Oh God, uh, you are the conqueror of death, the giver of life, the one who declares in your word that the last enemy to, that will be destroyed, it's not going to be hatred, it's not going to be racism, it's not even going to be sin. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Can't wait for that day. Jesus, you came out of a tomb, and for those who are in you, we will come out of ours too. So we worship and gather today uh, in victory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, church is often the place where we come together and we worship and we are suspended within a variety of emotions. Um, every time we gather in this room, there are people who are experiencing great victory and joy in their life, and there are people who are experiencing great so sorrow and grief in theirs. The last few days, I feel like I've been suspended within, between a variety of emotions. Yesterday, I traveled down to Tubalo with Stoney Ramsey, one of our elders here, and I stood over Deborah's body with the family. There's Tony and Hannah's on the bed holding her mother's hand, and I, wrestling in my spirit, just trying to process death and prayer and knowing as I'm standing over her that we serve a God who has the power to right there raise her back to life, but knowing if, even if God chose not to, which, which last night he didn't, uh, that Deborah will have life again in Jesus. Uh, I was standing there over her body and, and, and just uh, sometimes my job takes me into some places full of pain and grief and it never gets easy. And it reminded me when my sister was dying a few years ago that my mom had this moment where uh, they were told it's time to tell Jenny bye. And, and she called everyone in the room, even the nurses who had been with Jenny for, for days. And they stood around that bed. And my mom said, we're going to make a covenant today together. And we're going to go around this circle. And I don't care if you've even known my family for just two and a half weeks, you're going to make the covenant too. My mom's short, but she can throw it down, all right? She's, and she said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to say out loud with our mouths that even though we do not agree with what is happening, we are not going to serve any other God. And they went around and they confessed, we're not going to serve any other God. And it was part of the prayer I prayed in that room yesterday as I'm praying over Deborah. But then there was that moment. But then that Friday night, I was with some of you at work camp celebrating what God did in Memphis this past week, that God brought together churches within Memphis and outside of Memphis to come together to paint houses. But this is more than just, I even told them Friday night. I was like, I, I doubt this past week that God called a bunch of teenagers into a job where they're going to be scrapers and painters for the rest of their lives. That's not what work camp is. Work camp's teaching people about God and community and coming together in service. And work camp becomes this way that launches people. And it, Friday night was a great celebration. We saw before and after pictures. It was wonderful. Earlier in the week, I had a chance to travel and I spoke at three different places. I spoke at nonprofits and orphanages and I spoke at churches. And, and then last night, I came home from praying over Deborah and her family to Lucy Marrero was baptized right here last evening. Is Lucy, where are you, Lucy? And then I, I know some of you are so excited about going to Panama tomorrow. And I, and I even shot a text to some leaders. I was like, what time does that plane leave? Because I want to come and pray over the group. And they're like, we have to be there at like 4 or 4.30. And I was like, man, you know, if it, I'm kind of busy. I got an appointment at 4 or 4.30 in the morning. But I'll be praying over you guys, all right? 
Man, we're suspended between a lot of different emotions. And I, I love that we are a church where we can say, the church is not the place where you need to leave your sadness and grief and just have hope and joy in what God has done in you. We bring all that we are into the presence of God together. And we come into this room together, worshiping in a God who can hold all of these emotions together. Um, so let's dive into the Word. And I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And you also may go and maybe put a finger in Acts chapter 19. Um, we're in this series uh, called Christ and Culture. So glad you're here. If you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. If you're visiting online, so glad you've chosen to join us this morning. Uh, this is my wife's favorite book in the Bible. Um, her two favorite books are Ephesians and James. So she wanted to name our second kid after one of her favorite books. And we went with Noah James instead of Noah Ephesians, all right? But <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in the Bible. Now, you may tell English translators, thanks for throwing some commas and periods in there. But in the Greek, this is one long sentence. It's like Paul starts talking about the glory of God and he cannot stop. It's the longest run-on sentence in the Bible, all right? He would have gotten an F by an English professor, all right? But here's how it goes. And if you have your Bibles, if you mark in them, I want you to underline places that stick out to you. You may put a circle around or a star. Choose to come back to it later today. Beginning in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And for the reading of the word, the church said, Amen. Amen. In these few verses, there are three times Paul uses this one phrase. And you find this in verse, if you go to that next slide, uh, you'll find this in verse 6 of chapter 1, verse 12, and verse 14, where the phrase he comes back to a few different times is to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, that we might be for the praise of his glory. In verse 14, it's who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until, until, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So to start off this letter, it's like Paul is laying down this word, and I think people would have heard this. If it's repeated that many times, they would have caught a hold on it, uh, of it. Now, one thing when it comes to living for the praise of God's glory is realizing that we do not live for the praise of our own. It's for His praise. It's for God's glory. So I want to help you see how Paul is encouraging a church to live a kind of life where you're living for the praise of his glory because this is more than just some slogan to recite. It's more than a statement to recite. This is a, it's a life to live. What does it mean 
for you and me? What does it mean for the church to exist and to live every day for the praise of God's glory? Paul's writing to a church who many of them were grieving for a number of reasons. He's writing to a church where some of them were experiencing victory. He's writing to a church in the city of Ephesus. And I want to unpack that for us a little bit this morning. But he begins this letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He begins by calling them a name. And I think Paul was very strategic sometimes in the names he would choose and the descriptions he would choose to call people. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus. To the saints. He's writing to a lot of people who... For most of their lives, they had been pagans, anything but saints. And they didn't know any other way. Many of those people didn't know the ways of God, so it's not like they turned away from God in their childhood and then came back later on. They didn't know the ways of God at all. But if you were in Ephesus, there's a good chance you were caught up in all forms of uh, um, idol worship and pagan temples and uh, sex with prostitutes, all kinds of things, all right? And now he's calling them saints. Monday night, I was speaking at this nonprofit, and the, the crowd, the audience that night, were a lot of single mothers who um, have made a lot of bad decisions in their past. So they've come to this home where many of them are, have become clean, and they've come to know God, and they're given a second chance. In this home were single moms who many of them uh, have had to battle through drug addictions, alcoholism, prostitution. And as I'm standing in front of them, many of them, many of these moms have given their lives to Jesus just recently. And I talked to them about how we serve a God who is so quick and willing to forgive. And it's not like God like, begrudgingly forgives. Like he's just, well, I guess I'll kind of do it. Like a God who loves to forgive when people come and ask for it. And for many of those moms, it wasn't hard for them. It's not hard for them to grasp that there is a God who will forgive them for what they do. What's really hard for them is to let go of the shame of what they have done. They carry the shame of many of them had their babies while they were on drugs. And there's shame and there's guilt that they carry. And what's really hard for them, and what we talked about Monday night, is that it's really hard for them to get that there's a God who not only wants to save them, but wants to use them. And I was able to tell them, I preach in front of people every week where it's hard for many of us to look in a mirror and know that God wants to use all that God saves, that God forgives people and then God equips those same people to do something for God. And here he is writing to this church in Ephesus. Here Paul is, and he's telling these people, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, in Christ, you are your saints. You are saints in God. Um, Ephesus worked like this. So if you go back in your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 18, here's how the church in Acts, or here's how the church in Ephesus, here's how it began. There was this guy named Apollos. And Apollos is described like this in Acts 18, verse 24 through 26. Meanwhile, there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, who came to Ephesus. He was a learned man who had a thorough knowledge of Scripture. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So here's this guy who knew some stuff about Jesus. And the way he's described is that Apollos knew the word of God. He knew the scriptures, and he was a man full of boldness and passion. Wouldn't you love for someone to describe you this way one day? That's a person 
who knew the word of God and they craved the truth of God. Anna was a person who embodied like passion and boldness when it came to living out that faith. Here's what Apollos did. And this is so big for us today. Apollos knew that the calling of God on him was not to be a prosecutor of people. It was be a testifier to Jesus. It wasn't to prosecute or to point out the wrongs in people. It was to testify to the greatness of Jesus. And Paulos did it. And he was successful and God worked in him. God planted a church through him. So he had this burning passion. But if you read a little more in Acts chapter 18, he didn't know there were some things he wasn't really accurate about. So Priscilla and Aquila, this dynamic marriage, dynamic teaching team, they pull Apollos aside and teach him the ways of Jesus more accurately. And then Apollos has this vibrant ministry. Now Paul goes to Ephesus later on. And in chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, here's what you read about Paul. Um, If you go to that next verse. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some of the disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And I stop right there. Every time I read this, I stop right there because I'm like, of all the questions Paul could have asked those disciples, this is the question he chose to ask. I bet most of you, when you had experienced your conversion, you confessed Jesus, Lord, you were baptized. I bet most of you didn't have people come up and this was the question they asked. Like, did you receive the Holy Spirit? There were probably people who asked, like, what led you to that decision? Or what has God done in your life? Or what was it like, what's it like to be free? But here's the, here's the question Paul chose to ask. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Paul knew for the church to be who the church has been called to be. They have to have some kind of working of the Holy Spirit. They, they have to have a knowledge of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people who've, who've been baptized without ever being taught anything about the Holy Spirit. And here's Paul who's asked him, hey, here you are. You're, you're some new believers, some fresh converts. And did you, do you know the Holy Spirit? So Paul baptized him in the name of Jesus. And when this happened, you read a little bit more in Acts chapter 19. When this happened, these people started to prophesy. They're testifying. There were demonstrations of the power of God. Paul continued working in Ephesus. He went to the synagogue for three months where he would argue with people about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus, about the scriptures. The the synagogue wanted nothing to do with him. They were not buying what Paul was selling. So they removed him from the synagogue, but that didn't stop Paul. Because Paul's mindset was, if they don't allow me onto religious space, I'm going to secular space. I'm going to find someone to talk to Jesus about. And he did. This church of 12 people in Ephesus it started with 12, became this church that historians tell stories 40 to 50 years later was a church of tens of thousands of people. God can take a small group and can light them on fire with the Spirit of God and start revivals. Uh, Paul had this ministry. In fact, in chapter 19, verse 10, you read that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, they heard the word of the Lord. Now, does that really mean like every single person because Ephesus was a city of 250,000 people. Does it mean that hundreds of thousands heard directly from Paul? Maybe not. It may just be a blanket statement like a ton of people in this area heard the good news of Jesus. And then in verse 19, verse 11, miracles began to take place. God was doing extraordinary, miraculous things in Ephesus. God is demonstrating his power. Because Ephesus was a place with great witchcraft and magic. There were magic books. You'll read about it here in just a moment. It's the place of palm readers, tarot cards. Harry Potter was there. Bewitched, all right? Uh, It was a place where all this stuff was going on. So the challenge to the gospel reaching people in Ephesus was great. 
But when people caught hold of the fire of God and the truth of God, here's what you read in Acts 19, 19 and 20. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Like, this is the equivalent of six to eight million dollars in today's money. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and the word of the Lord grew in power. Now, there are probably some people, maybe even in the church, who said, hey, let's not burn the books. Let's just go sell them to the people of Corinth, make some money and give the money to the poor. Do something good with it. But their mindset was, if there is something that is evil, we don't sell it or give it to anyone else. We burn it. We get rid of it. So if you lived in Ephesus and you were a leader, the economy is suffering because of the name of Jesus. People are no longer worshiping idols, which means they're not buying idols. People are no longer giving money to pagan temples and all these synagogues. So the economy's suffering. And when the economy suffers in a lot of places, there are riots. Riots start breaking out in Ephesus. There are riots because the economy is suffering. Sometimes we equate a growing economy with, the, with something good in the favor of God. Uh, economies throughout the world, sometimes when they grow, it doesn't mean the kingdom of God is growing. Let me take just a moment, all right? And I need to push against some of the health, wealth gospel that's preached in a, in a number of places, which sometimes tells people this, if you love God and you're faithful to God, you'll get more money, a better job, a nicer car, and a better house. Uh, if you read the Bible and you read Jesus, this is, this is not truth, all right? This is, this is baloney, and that's like a rated G word that I'm trying to find, all right? Uh, it, it, this is not truth. That to be faithful to God doesn't mean that everything in your life or your family is going to get better. Sometimes it doesn't. Faithfulness to God means that there is something being stored up for eternity and may not reap its benefits here. Now, when good things come, we give thanks to the one who deserves thanks. But here in that city, for people giving their lives to Jesus, the, there's persecution. Riots break out, and riots are breaking out because lives are being changed. The economy was affected. Allegiances were shifting. In that time, riots weren't happening because Christians thought that the calling of their lives were to change laws. That people were rioting because Christians knew that the calling of their lives was to change lives. And sometimes today, I think, especially in America, we get this all backwards. We put all our time in getting laws to be changed, and laws need to be changed. But lives are changed. The church is called to change lives. Listen to some of the challenges that the church in Ephesus faced. Ephesus is a city. It was a city of about 250,000 people. It was a center in the world for witchcraft and magic. In that city alone, there were numerous cults, and you would sign on to them to gain the favor from the gods. In that city alone, there were over 20 pagan temples. And nearly every pagan temple had uh, prostitutes. So you would have encounters with them thinking that in that it becomes a spiritual experience that you're connecting to the gods. In that place, there were specific temples given to Artemis, who was the god, goddess of a lot of different things, of fertility, of war. And, and there was a big festival every year where a million people would come to Ephesus every year and would engage in a festival of Dionysus. Dionysus was a goddess of fertility, a goddess of wine, and a goddess of drama. If there's a festival worshiping a god of fertility, wine, and drama, don't you think chaos breaks out a little bit? 
This is why in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Paul says, hey, don't get drunk on wine. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's not referring to acapella music in Acts 5, 18 and 19. He's talking to people who would have known that once a year there was the largest keg party in the first century world, and it happened in Ephesus. Here are these challenges. Do you think, can you imagine, as you just see the screen, can you just get a picture of what kind of challenge it would have been like to be the church in this city and in that time? Imagine being a married couple in your mid-20s with four or let's just say six kids trying to raise them. You've just come to know the Lord. You want to raise your family in the Lord. And this is the city you were raising them in. Yet not one time does Paul say, if you want to be serious about God, let's go form our own little Christian community out on an island and let's escape all of this. Instead, Paul is teaching the church, that, hey, the Spirit of God fills you so that we can go out into this place where evil is celebrated to teach people about the good news of Jesus. And the question I keep coming back to is, if it worked in Ephesus, why can it not work in Memphis or Shelby County, New Orleans, Vegas, you just name it. When Paul writes to them in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to the saints in Ephesus. Because God pressed this on me five or six years ago. That the most evil, immoral cities in the first century world now have books of the Bible named after them. Because God didn't give up on Ephesus. God didn't give up on Rome. God didn't give up on Corinth. And this is where the gospel exploded. And it's what God still wants to do. Paul ends Ephesians by talking about the armor of God. In chapter 6, verse 10, he says, finally, like Paul comes to a conclusion, like finally, be strong in the Lord. And here's what it means to be strong in the Lord. And then he gives them the armor of God where he talks to them about the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, and to pray in the Spirit. Paul's equipping these people, and the way that armor works is that the armor would be put on not to shrink from the world, but to go and engage the world. And the way Ephesians works, and Kip and I were processing this back on, on Monday, is that Paul doesn't begin the book of Ephesians with the armor of God. He begins the book of Ephesians talking about what it means to live to the praise of the glory of God. Because Paul doesn't begin with the armor of God because there are people who get really excited about Jesus and they want the armor because they want to engage in activity. But if you don't have truth and identity established, you're running out into a battle not knowing what the truth is, the mission is, what your purpose is. And Paul's using military imagery, which probably most of those people then would have had some idea of. Do you want somebody who's in your, on your side, on your team, running out into battle, dressed for war, but they don't know why they're going or where they're going or what they're supposed to be doing in it? It's, hey, we as the church are called to live to the praise of God's glory. And then he ends the book by basically saying, look, the question isn't do we go out into the city of Ephesus to make a difference? The question is, what do we wear as we go? And the answer is, you put on the armor of God. And with the armor on, we engage. Our identity's established, truth is established, and now we go. 
I love the song Sarah Groves wrote a few years ago, and it was a play off the song that was written in the late 1800s about the saints marching into heaven, which is a song full of truth, like we will march into heaven one day. But Sarah Groves wrote this song, and the way she flipped it is that the people of God, it's not just about marching into heaven, is that we are filled with the power of God to march into the world today to live for Jesus. So saints of God who are gathered in this room today, the Spirit of God is on us, calling us to march into a world to share the love of God and the truth of Jesus all over wherever we go from this place today. Let's be faithful. Will you bow your heads? Close your eyes. If you want to open your hands where you are just to receive from the Lord. God, if there's someone in this room who has never surrendered their life to Jesus, has never confessed you as Lord, and maybe they're thinking that their good deeds are enough. But God, if there's someone in this room who has never confessed you with their mouth, that you were the Lord of their life, or they've never been baptized into Christ, send your spirit to stir in them, place in front of them the greatness of Jesus so that there's no way they could not say yes to him. And for those of us who have, teach us what it means to live into our salvation. Teach us what it means to put on the armor of God and to be filled with boldness and courage so that we can be ambassadors and people who testify to your greatness this week. I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus.